these last remarks, uh, they will be additives to some of the uh, questions that weren't answered <coughs> and some of the presentations that uh, had the speakers had more time, uh, they would have covered because they would have provided you with otherwise hard to come by insight. Number one, education of people to people. It's been 10 years now <clears throat> since a deputy minister of one of the GCC countries said that, well, it was Saudi Arabia, said that we have 300 graduates of America's universities. 300. Now, the number of American graduates of GCC universities, if you take time and round them off to the nearest even number, is zero. Okay? So this was 10 years ago, and that was one country. Um, I don't know how to estimate it, but I would think 600,000 <clears throat> is not an exaggeration if you add uh, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, the Emirates, and Oman. Now, how did this come about? Uh, it came about in a way that I experienced in 1962, <clears throat> when the Yemen Revolution began, or uh, Civil War began, and it was a revolution because it toppled the monarchy there that had been in existence for several hundred years. And one by one, all of a sudden, there were 80,000 Egyptian troops on Saudi Arabia's doorstep. Uh, this had not ever happened before, hasn't happened since. And you can imagine uh, how we would feel. Look at, look at the sensation of us sending three to 5,000 uh, to Mexico's border. Suppose uh, 80,000 were concentrated just above Maine or just above Minnesota uh, there of some foreign troops, very um, efficient, effective, uh, eager uh, to beat you up, foreign troops. We'd be scared to death. Faisal found that all of Egypt's secondary school graduates up until that time went to secondary school in Egypt, because there weren't many in Saudi Arabia. So here they were sending their youth to the very country that was invading and occupying them. So he made a strategic decision that when you make a strategic decision in the area of, of education to completely scrap the existing curriculum, or at least the dynamics of it, and uh, substitute it with another one, you will not see the results until 12 years later. K through 12, kindergarten, elementary school, junior high school, high school, graduation at grade 12. Do the arithmetic. It started in 1962, and here they come in 1974. 99.9 tenths of Americans thought, oh, they're coming because they got all that goddamn oil money. Yeah, they jacked the price of oil up and they're screwing us. They got us over a barrel. Uh, that's why they're coming. They had, that enabled them to have more means than they had in 62 for sure. But no, the impetus was strategic. The impetus was long term. 
And we've had several speakers emphasize this relationship needs to have people looking at it who are able to look at things long term. And so we have been the net beneficiaries of that. These are almost 97% pro-American individuals in these countries. Uh, there's nothing comparable on the reverse side. So there's no equilibrium there. There's massive asymmetry. So their ability to understand us is not perfect, hardly devoid of fault, defect, uh, blemish, uh, but you've seen, and by having a conference like this, it's facie evidence of how little we know about that region and how important it is and how much work we have in front of us to learn about that region. This region is not saturated with people. If you went to a faculty advisor, they're not going to say to you, oh, focus on Latin America or Africa instead because there are too many specialists in the region, this region. No. <laughs> uh, Fifteen years ago at, at a Middle East Studies Association of 3,000 academics, it was decided, let's establish a Society for Gulf Arab Studies among the 3,000 of us, those who focus on Arabia and the Gulf. The total was 16, Okay. Iran, at the same time, had an Iran Studies Association with 440 members. Turkish study, 200 members. So you see what work we have to do. There's six countries. A person could focus on one, two, three, all six, and you'd be in demand if, if you did it seriously and with great effort and energy. That's point one. Point two is that these individuals have pressured their governments to do something from which we're the only people on the planet that benefit, and that is support for the dollar as the means and the currency for their international financial transactions. Think of it from the Russians' point of view, or the, some other point of view, I was going to say Chinese point of view, but they have plenty of dollars, ours. Uh, but think of it from the Russian point of view, uh, they're having to export enough to earn dollars in order to pay in dollars. Uh, we would not want to do that. So what they do in this regard is not, has nothing to do with oil. Sure, it was made possible by oil, but once you put your money in the bank, it has a life of its own that's not at all influenced by oil or gas or anything in between. Uh, so this is key to the preeminence of the American banking system worldwide. And those of you who are going into this field who have a financial, economic, business management uh, acumen, uh, you will have your choice of the jobs uh, that will be offered to you because of the deficit of people who have Arabic or Arab studies even uh, with this kind of skill, okay? That's point two. Point three is the support that these allies, these individuals and their elites and leaders uh, provide for us where we're vulnerable, where we're weak, where we're exposed, where we're endangered, namely inside eight different international organizations 
where we have interests, uh, we have concerns, we have needs, but we're not on the inside and therefore can't do anything about it when they meet. They all have charters, they all have secretaries, they all have headquarters, they all have annual meetings, if not also quarterly meetings. We're not in any of them. Uh, but on the table for them is always, what are we going to do about Uncle Sam and Aunt Samara, the United States, in terms of our relationship? And, and grow stronger and more expensive, or let's begin to cut our losses because uh, we're embarrassed by the positions that the um, administrations, one after the other, takes on issues of moral importance to us. We don't have to take this. China doesn't do that. Russia does No other country does that. America's not pressured by any country to have the policies it has regarding Palestine or to provide uh, the country that will not allow Palestine to be free, sovereign, nationally independent, and its territory intact, we, those of us in the audience and other taxpayers, pay that country $150 a second. This is since 1979. Uh, I don't have the figures before that. $150 every second since 1979. $6,777 every minute, $366,000 every hour, and a minimum of $10 million a day, okay? And the recipient is a competitor with us for being the Olympic champion of violators of international law and our own constitution. That's point three. That's, that's point four. Uh, point five is what they have done when we have been in conflict. I mentioned three. The Iran-Iraq War, 1980-88, the uh, liberation of Kuwait, 1991, and Iraq since 2003. Uh, when we are injured in that region, it is often to their clinics, their hospitals, that we are taken uh, because it's too far to go to Ramstein in Germany or across the Atlantic to the United States where we could possibly die, probably die en route. And so we're tended to by our Arab friends right in the region. During the Iran-Iraq war, when we were trying to put our flag on tankers going to Kuwait, one of them was hit the USS Stark, and Americans were killed and thrown into the sea. Um, it was Bahrain that went out and rescued them. It was Bahrain that brought them into Bahrain's hospital. It was Bahrain's ruler that went to visit them in their beds, their sick rooms. Um, many people do not know that. With regard to Khomeini's regime in Iran that put a death sentence out for the author of satanic curses, verses, satanic verses there. Not long after that, there was a meeting of the organization of the Islamic Conference in Riyadh. Iran 
wanted a resolution supportive of what it did. Every single member country voted against what Iran had done. I thought, wow, because we'd been looking at the whole region through the lens of a small country in the eastern Mediterranean and a large country on the eastern side of the Gulf there, and I thought, wow, this, this will settle it. This will have a more level playing field. Not one American news outlet uh, covered it, printed it, that major breakthrough there. Similarly, again, with the Organization of Islamic Conference, uh, they pulled a trick because of what Iran was doing not to stop the war. They said, oh, we've been talking about remodeling the area around the Grand Mosque in Mecca and the Prophet's Mosque and Tomb in Medina, and we keep putting it off. No, we're going to do it right now. <laughs> and all of us will suffer. We'll have to pull our back belt in, and each of us will have 10% less pilgrims uh, allowed to go on the pilgrimage. And the Iranians went through the roof, and so did the Pakistanis, and so did the Malaysians. They said, you're not going to tell us how many pilgrims we can take there, etc." Well, Iran was the loudest, though, and so Saudi Arabia broke relations with Iran and said, good luck on getting your visa. The number of Iranians that went on the pilgrimage that year were less than six versus the 300,000 that they wanted or demanded that they be allowed to take. And this eroded and corroded the popular base support for Khomeini, who was prolonging the war, the old whiskers there. And many people, everyone who knows a Muslim, realizes that many save all their life uh, to make that journey especially in sub-Saharan Africa. They call it the Hajj Iswit there. Uh, with the Organization of Islamic Conference, in which we're not a member, did something like that. And it hastened the end of the Iran-Iraq war. And they stood with us on July the 15th, 1987, when UN Resolution 687 came for a vote. And this was to condemn the war's prolongation and demand an immediate ceasefire. Iraq accepted it. Iran took 13 months to accept it. And many, many more thousands were killed as a result. And when the leader of Iran did accept it, he said, I would rather have drunk poison than accept this ceasefire. Uh, so I'm mentioning things that are not well known, but are part of the glue and the adhesive that hold us together despite what's happened in the last month where journalists I've never heard of uh, are implying that we should be pulled apart or pushed apart. Six, we have three laws that are punitive to American business women and men who want to invest or have trade and establish joint 
commercial ventures in the region. One is the Arab boy, Anti-Arab Boycott Act of 1975. The second one is the Corrupt Practices Act of 1976. And the third one, the uh, Amendment to the Tax Reform Act of 1978. Uh, no other country in the world has that kind of legislation. Uh, Iceland had it for a time. But what this does is drive a wedge between our private sector and the private sector of the region. Uh, you can go to jail. There are two on the Arab boycott side. There's one that's administered by the Department of Commerce, another administered by the Department of Treasury. And you think I'm making these things up? Uh, a business person from an American aerospace or defense company and going into the Ministry of Defense in an Arab country, and uh, they become friends uh, in the process of negotiation and conversation. And the minister or the deputy minister or the director general, whatever, says, you know, I have a 13-year-old daughter, and she has had infantile paralysis since she was a little girl. And her legs are very deformed, and it's very difficult for her to walk. And we don't have anybody who specializes in that kind of medical assistance. But we know of one in Switzerland and one in France and three in Germany and two in Great Britain. Um, but we don't know. They have a long line. And we're told that that will be at least a year and a half. Can you help? If that person says, yes, I'll help you, it can be interpreted and the person put in prison for doing a favor to an official of another government and an effort to try to make a sale. Um, with regard to the amendment to the Tax Reform Act, I may have my arithmetic wrong, but I think you'll get the gist of it. It's a, a position would ordinarily go for $100,000 in one of these countries. Well, you can get uh, three Canadians for that. Uh, you can get six Pakistanis for that. Let's say it's an engineer. But you have to pay the American tens of thousands of dollars more so that she or he can pay her tax and not be punished for working abroad. And this is upside down, inside out, if you're talking about enhancing trade and exports and service industries and jobs related to it, because the Americans living and working abroad, they are our best marketeers. They're right there on the ground. And when they are in a discussion talking about this bridge or that refinery, they do not talk about German specifications or Japanese specifications for the columns, uh, for the arch, whatever. No, they went to Texas A&M or wherever, and they recommend the only ones they know, which are American specifications there. Uh, for it to be otherwise, we're talking about tens of billions of dollars that one has to pay just in order to accommodate somebody else's weights, measures, and standards when the situation is largely that 
we are able to trade and invest and have joint commercial ventures with our Arab friends, regardless of that set of punitive laws that no other country has. All other countries want us to keep them on the books <laughs> because it's a boon to them. It helps them in their marketing expertise and efforts there. All efforts to amend those laws have failed because the lobbyists of another set of friends, allies, strategic partners in the same region uh, intimidate and threaten any congressman or woman uh, who would dare move to take those books, those laws off the books. Um, where's the courage? Okay. Eight, think of Saudi Aramco. We misspelled it there. It's no longer Aramco. It is Saudi Aramco. But once it was the Arabian American Oil Company, the one that discovered the oil, produced it, laid the pipes, had the storage terminals, had the refineries, had the ships, etc., and aided not just the recovery of Europe from the Marshall Plan and the few, uh, but much of Japan as well. Japan has no oil. Italy has no oil. Uh, half a dozen European unions don't have a drop of oil. It came from these countries, and this was in our net as well as our gross benefit. But think of it for a minute. There's no country in the world that would not trade places with us in terms of the overall relationship that we have with the Arab region. 22 countries in the Arab region, 28 in the Middle East, 57 members of the Organization of Islamic uh, Cooperation. And so the more we get exasperated and... Um, our angst increases, as does our temperature, and we say, let's be independent of those SOBs. And a movement, movements to that effect began in the 1970s, after the last Arab oil embargo in October 1973. People began to invest in scientific labs to find something, anything, so we wouldn't be dependent on those SOBs, okay? Nobody else in the world did. The press in no other country is as anti-hydrocarbon fuels as is the media and much else amongst America's private sector towards hydrocarbon fuels. And yet it is absolutely vital to human existence. On your table is a cloth inside of which there are textiles laced with petrochemicals. Much of your lunch was raised as a result of the nutrients in the soil that allowed the crop to come up and be harvested there. Many of the pills and equipment in hospitals all over the world 
come from petrochemicals, which come from oil and gas, etc. It is the engine. There is no other remotely comparable competitive engine that drives the world's economies. And as being the largest, we are therefore the largest beneficiary of that. I'm suggesting additional ways to look at this issue. So we have benefited enormously with the highest standard of living in the world, with the most enviable material well-being in the world, uh, with funds and money that can have a $750 billion defense budget and add $250 billion from the Department of Energy, which regulates and runs and administers a nuclear uh, situation, and you've got more than a trillion. Uh, where did that money come from? It's largely our own, but we do borrow, as do others. There was a time in the 70s when Saudi Arabia alone was in the top five of countries that purchased America's debt and enabled Americans to continue paying the salaries of cadets and people in service and school lunches for the underprivileged. Uh, had that not occurred, we would have had to have raised taxes to find the requisite funds to do that. So that's benefit number eight. But hidden in most people's analyses of it is this. It was not just a boon for both ends of the bridge, Saudi Arabia's economy, people in society, material well-being in America, society, economy, material well-being, revenue, investments, commercial joint ventures, trading, etc. The entire region benefited because it is so valuable, so precious, that we built willy-nilly a protective ring all around it as best we could. And that protective ring protected more than Saudi Arabia. It protected, Saudi Arabia has 13 neighbors. It protected most of them. Uh, the AWACS that we sold in a small country at the eastern end of the Mediterranean didn't want us to sell to Saudi Arabia. Uh, it covers Kuwait, Bahrain, and Qatar and the Emirates, and parts of Oman, uh, because of its techno technology and its reach from Saudi Arabia, the AWACS fly. Uh, but look at the multiple beneficiaries of this one particular aspect here. And when Kuwait was invaded, you had almost an automaticity a unanimous vote in the United Nations Security Council to come to Kuwait's aid. Communist USSR stood with us arm to arm, shoulder to shoulder, 12 consecutive times and voted 
with us uh, on the resolutions that contemned what Iraq uh, was doing. Uh, I'm not sure we would do that so quickly or as effectively. We're not seeing since then the Russians standing with us and voting on issues of importance, and we've not seen China standing with us and voting with us on issues of importance there. So I'll stop here and simply revert to four words that have come up intermittently in the discussions. And this is every country's strong, and there's no stronger urge to be secure. As we human beings seek to be secure, none of us want to be insecure. It's hell if and when you are insecure. And if you've never been insecure, you will know it when you are insecure. And you will never, ever want to be in that situation again. And your mind will start racing. How can I prevent this recurring? Well, here's a situation where we have been involved in aiding that. As I don't like to use the word they, as the people in other countries in this region uh, have contributed to our ability to make this achievement of reality. So that's security. And the next Siamese twin joined at the hip is stability. Without security, you will not have the necessary stability. And people look at stability as a given. (laughs) It's not at all a given. But with stability in a government's secure situation, one can plan with confidence. One of the young people yesterday spoke about how you can obtain confidence when you don't have confidence or didn't have confidence, but you can get confidence. And we work with youth to achieve precisely that kind of result. So you can plan. You can prepare, you can anticipate, you can predict. All of these things are keys to a better life than take those keys away and what that life would be. And those two are absolutely related to peace. Everyone says they want peace. Many people do not have peace. And part of the reasons is the absence of security and the absence of stability. And someone invaded them, wanted their mountain, wanted their gas, wanted their green fields, etc. And they did so with impunity. So peace be upon us. <laughs> But peace is also key to prosperity. You cannot have a chance at prosperity absent security, stability, and peace. And his uh, relationship, the Arab-U.S. relationship, 
where we've been working on trying to improve two P's and two A's. One P is uh, positions on issues. We stand for this. We don't stand for that. I'm thinking we're standing there with the knee, taking a knee for the uh, national anthem there. Uh, this came to my mind there. And we largely stand against the people who are doing that because we think it's unpatriotic. Is it really unpatriotic if you know the reason a person knelt in respect to the flag, but just in a different way? Do we all have to be exactly the same in our behavior or our positions? Okay? And we have positions on abortion, right to life. Okay, so that's one of the P's. Another one I'll come back to last, but two of the A's are actions and attitudes. Actions that one takes after thinking out of the box and saying, now I've got it. You have to do something to bring it about, and that means taking action. Uh, but what kind of action? How long will you do it? How much will it cost? Are you confident? Can you achieve your goal by undertaking an action to accomplish it? I don't think you can. But what is the other A that drives the three I've mentioned, the two I've mentioned, and that is attitudes. Are you depressed, optimistic? Are you jaded? Are you exhausted? Uh, just tired out, worn out? With this region in America, there is Arab fatigue. There are people who just say enough is enough. There are other regions and peoples in the world who are deserving, and I'm going to focus on them. Uh, the Arab world is hopeless, etc. Uh, are you like that? Have you been like that? In any event, the attitudes are key as uh, the other two actions and policies, and excuse me, and positions. Those three combined are the essence of policies. And we've had a lot here to focus on policies. And let's hope as we vote next week that we can vote our head and our heart much more informed in our head of what is right and what is wrong and realize that achieving our goals will not occur by accidents, accident or coincidence. It will be, in, in my view, a combination of what some have said of conviction. And conviction is associated with will. And you heard several people mention that. 
and conviction and will uh, linked at the hip to commitment. Okay, what are you going to do about it? In my life, and I don't know about your life, I have maybe 40 plus convictions. It's just a number out of the thin air. Maybe I have 80. Maybe there are only 13. But in any event, uh, like the rest of us, we can only work so many hours before we have to go to sleep and we have to eat and we have to run errands. So we can't have a commitment for every one of our convictions. So which of our convictions will we roll into a commitment? That takes a lot of inner searching and talking uh, with yourself. But in this field, because for many, Arab is a four-letter word, what is required is courage. Not just political courage, which is absent in both houses of our Congress. A sidebar here for the three civil rights laws passed in 1963, 64, 65, not a single Southern senator of the 26 Southern states, 13 Southern states, voted for any of those three civil rights laws. Uh, not one senator. And in the House of Representatives, that had more than 140 representatives, if I recall, in the House from the South, only one voted for those laws that gave African Americans their due. Uh, that was long overdue from the moment the first slave set foot in America in 1619. This aspect befell that man. He was voted out of office the very next year. And so the people who have the moral will and political will to a degree, but in a national situation, they pay a mighty price. The chairman of our International Advisory Board is Congress, former Congressman Paul Finley. He served 23 years, and he wrote a blockbuster book it was on the bestseller in the Washington Post for weeks after weeks in the summer when he, he wrote it there. He's 97 years old, and when we talk, he says, John Duke, I'm 97, and I'm still on fire. <laughs> and he is. They are these people. So it, it's not just the political courage. It's also the moral courage, without which the political courage uh, won't come to pass. Um, I'll stop here and thank you for listening and being part of this uh, conference where we try to make a difference, and we've been trying since 1991. But we can't do it without participants. Um, thank you.